You're the one that gives us breath in our lungs, Father, and we praise you. God, you are the covenant maker, and you have sent your Son to save us, God. Praise be your name. Father, we pray this morning as we open your word and we look at one of the most majestic scenes in Scripture, we would see your greatness and say, holy are you, and thank you for your Son. Thank you that you invite us into relationship with you, that the veil is torn in the temple and we can enter in boldly and speak with you about our lives. So, Father, thank you for this morning, and we pray that you would open your word to us now as we look at a year gone by and look into the new year. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. We're doing something a little new and different today. We got two stools, but we got the wrong people on the stools. Yeah, am I Kevin? Are you Robert? Or am I Robert? You're Kevin? Well, you know, if I'm Kevin... I don't have the beard. I guess I need to grow a beard. <clears throat> That's right. If I'm Kevin and you're Robert, then you know what that means. I have to root for Washington, and you have to root for Alabama. And that is never going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> Not in a million years. I mean, I do like your Brighton High School sweatshirt there. but Well, that's who we played yesterday, it seemed like. Yeah. <laughs> hey, do you know what you call two, one Ph.D. nerd and one almost Ph.D. nerd sitting on stools? Boring. <laughs> yes. <laughs> or Jared and Travis. Oh, yeah, that'll work right. too, yeah. So my name is Jared Jenkins. I'm one of the pastors here uh, on staff at, at Risen Life. And, and I'm Travis is. Kearns. I'm one of the pastors on staff as well. Yeah, and so we're going we're gonna to... Open up today and uh, look at Isaiah 6, 1 through 13, if you want to go ahead and, and turn there. You know, what's fun is we've got two stools up here, and doing a joint sermon is something that's kind of new for both of us. So as we stumble through this, kind of our hope is, is that we're just going to have a conversation and let you in on that conversation going on. So it's not going to be really scripted or anything like that, but every word we're going to say is on the papers in front of us. Uh, <laughs> that's a joke. Calm down, right? Uh, and we're hoping after the two-hour mark, we'll take a break for lunch and come back. And, and then right. that'll just be the first point, and then we'll come back and finish the other ten. There'll be a book published afterwards. There'll be a book published afterwards, yeah. We'll be glad yeah. to sign those for you. It'll be called Humility and How to Know You Have It. That's right. You know, there's, there are some people on the planet who are not exactly known for their humility most times. And those people are football coaches. One of the, probably one of the least <coughs> humble and most well-known football coaches in the history of all of football is a guy named Vince Lombardi. Vince Lombardi went to Green Bay in 1959 to be the coach for the Packers, and he went for one reason and one reason alone, and that was to turn around a losing program. That was the sole reason that he was hired, was to turn around this losing program, and he started the season in 1959 with a speech that would become famous, and that was very famous in football. And he would give that speech every year he was at the Packers, and then every year he was at the Redskins. And in fact, he's so well known because of this speech and because of the turnaround he affected at Green Bay that the Super Bowl trophy is now called the Lombardi Trophy. And that speech started like this. He would walk in the opening practice of every season, he'd have a football in his hand. And he would sit down with all of those professional athletes, and he would say, gentlemen, this is a football. 
And you kind of think to yourself, you think, these are pros. It would be like walking into a medical doctor's office and saying, gentlemen, this is a stethoscope. <coughs> he's, he's saying this is a foot. Why in the world would he do that? It really doesn't seem to make much sense until you understand what he was getting at. And when he sits down with these pros and he says, gentlemen, this is a football, what he's trying to get at is, is this is what is basic. And because he majored on those basics, he turned the Green Bay team around from a losing program into a winning program. In fact, he ranks number one among all NFL coaches in history with the highest number of championships won. All because he said, gentlemen, this is a football. He knew that the basics were important. He knew that winning meant getting back to the basics of football. Now, let's transition a little bit. If Lombardi knew that the basics of football were important, how much more important are the basics of Christianity? I would submit to you this morning that Christianity is easy and we make it hard. That church is easy and we make it hard. In fact, the entire Bible focuses around something that Jesus gave called the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And it's all about the basics. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Guess what the basics of Christianity are? It's not committees. It's not groups. It's not how we're going to do this or how we're going to do that. The basics of Christianity are twofold. There's no need to worry about nine marks. There's no need to worry about five purposes. There are two things that Jesus instructs us to do individually as believers and corporately as a church. And those two things are evangelism and discipleship. And everything we do is covered by one or both of those things. And guess what? Here at Risen Life, that's what we're all about. In fact, it's kind of nice for Jared and I this morning because our two main points have been put up on the walls. Thanks for doing that. <laughs> Actually, real I, did, life, I did that. You did that. That's right. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. So real life transformation is about justification. It's about salvation. It's about being discipled to be made more into the image of Christ. And real life multiplication is about evangelism. It's about going out and multiplying yourself. Yeah, and so as we were thinking about this, we think one of the best passages comes from, as we've said, Isaiah 6, uh, 1 through 13. And, and what we see here... Big surprise that Jared would pick Isaiah. That's right. Hey, I got a joke for you on that. About Isaiah? Yeah. A joke. You have a joke about Isaiah? I do. Okay. Do you know what, do you know what, let me see if I can get this right. (laughs) See, I'm a a PhD student. You should practice this. You can't make jokes. That's right. Um, Do you know what Foghorn Leghorn's favorite book of the Bible is? I'm I'm a little nervous. Isaiah. Isaiah. (laughs) Come on. Just for the record, that was Jared and not me. That's right. I made that up in the shower this morning. Thank you very much. We can tell. (laughs) All right. So we're going to look at Isaiah 6, 1 through 13. And this is where Isaiah meets a holy God. He has a vision of God in his throne room, even as we were just kind of singing about that thing. He is transformed, and then he is sent on mission for the Lord. And so what we'll see is kind of verses 1 through 7 
deal with real life transformation, okay? Isaiah's life being transformed by his encounter with God. And in that, we're going to talk a little bit about connecting and growing. Uh, And then verses 8 through 13 deal with real life multiplication, what Isaiah is sent to do and how God will build a people for himself. And so part of that, we're going to look at what it means to serve and reach. And so what we're going to do, we're going to read the whole passage here. And so I would encourage you to stand up with me. I think this is one of the most grand passages in the Bible. Uh, And so we're going to stand and read the Word of God this morning. Here's what it says in Isaiah 6. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two He covered His face, and with two He covered His feet, and with two He flew. And the one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. And I heard a voice from the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I. Send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. And I said, But how long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste, without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains. When it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. Thank you. You can be seated. Let's pray before we jump in. Lord, as we've read your word this morning, God, we ask that you would plant it deeply in our hearts. But Lord, as it's planted deeply in our hearts, Keep us from keeping it there. Lord, push us to move it out into the community. God, as we study your word, let us not run in front of the cross or lag behind, but keep us at the feet of Jesus. And we ask these things in his name. Amen. Amen. So look at verse number one. As Jared said, the first seven verses we're looking at are going to deal with real life transformation. In verse number one, we're going to see that Isaiah is connected to God the Father through his grief. Look again at verse number one. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, 
I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So what's going on here is Isaiah's family is a very well-connected family. He's a very white-collar kind of prophet. They're very well-connected, and, and Uzziah, the king, had been a very close personal family friend. So when Uzziah dies, for Isaiah, it's like losing an uncle or losing a grandfather. This is somebody that Isaiah is very closely connected to. So he does what any good Jew would do. He goes to the temple in order to pray. And as he walks in, he sees a vision of the throne room. And it's a vision of God sitting on this throne. And it's interesting to note that God is seated on the throne and not standing. He's seated on the throne. And what that tells us is is that God is presently reigning and ruling and in sovereign command of the universe. If that doesn't want to make you grab a flag and wave it around and become a charismatic, then I don't know what will. <laughs> Jason's in the back. He'll help you with that. <laughs> right? This is God showing, I am in control. Even in the midst of Isaiah's deep, dark grief, God is showing him, I am in control. Notice also that he's high and lifted up. He's holy, and the train of his robe fills the temple. That's from the English Standard Version. That's a horrible translation. It's not just the train of the robe. It's the hem of the train of the robe. So it's this little one-inch section of the train that's filling the entire temple. This is a big vision of God. Notice that Isaiah is connected to him, though, through his grief. Isn't it true that certain human connections and certain connections that we make are only available to be made through grief? You ever thought about that? The same thing holds true for your connection to God the Father. Isaiah was connected because of being stricken by grief, and he has this grand vision of God. But a lot of times when we go through our grief, we feel completely disconnected, don't we? It's a little bit Sunday school to even talk about this, but there's a poem that was written a while back called Footprints. And while there's great times going on, there's two sets of footprints, and it's Jesus walking alongside the person going through good times. And in hard times, The two footprint sets disappear and only one comes up. And at the end of the poem, the guy says, Jesus, why did you leave me during the hard times? And the poem says that Jesus looks at the guy and says, it's not that I left you, it's that I picked you up and I carried you through hard times of grief. So when we go into those hard times of grief, we have to be connected to the Father. We have to press into the gospel, not run away when life gets hard. As this verse tells us, He is sovereign. He leads us through all of our stages of life, and we only realize this when we're <coughs> intimately connected through prayer and through study. Yep, and it's, it's, it is those hard times a lot of times that prompt us to seek the Lord. In fact, the Bible talks about that, that God puts things in our life. Sometimes we encounter suffering, and it's so that we would seek the Lord, uh, and not only to connect with Him, but to grow in Him, right, to, to learn about who He is um, and so it's essential that if we want to grow in the Lord, we need to be connecting with Him. And, and like we've seen with Isaiah, sometimes this comes through suffering or something that's happened. But in our Christian lives, if we want to grow a lot, we need to be regularly connecting with God. John fifteen five, classic verse on this, talks about Jesus saying, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And so as followers as Jesus, to be growing in the Lord, we need to make regular time to be connecting with Him. And we mainly do this through His Word, through prayer, and getting together as a corporate body of believers on, on Sunday. Um, and so my challenge to you, the, the start of this year, is that you would set aside some time to get with the Lord. 
Okay? Think through your schedule. Think about uh, what you have going on in life and find some time to get with the Lord. Uh, this may mean that you've got to stop something that interferes with getting with the Lord. In fact, I'd encourage you to think about that as well. I think we see this in Ezra, one of my favorite characters in the Bible. Ezra 7.10 says that Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach it. Okay? And I want you to see that, he had, that there was action required on Ezra's part. Right? He had, he had to set time to study to learn what God says, he had to put in effort at, at practicing it, and he took it even a step further to say, I want to teach it to other people. And so even in there, we're going to see a little bit of real-life transformation. He's letting the Word transform him, and then he's going out and multiplying what God is doing in his heart with others. Now, here's the cool thing. And boy, do we have an offer for you. That's right. Boy, do we have an offer for you. But it's free. It's a free offer. A that free you offer. Can't, what do we need to do to get you to take this offer home today? <laughs> That's right. So one last Christmas present for you for the new year. We have purchased for every family, okay, so just take one per family. It's a chronological reading plan to the Bible for this year that will help you read through the Bible. Now you're going, there's no way I can do that every day. I get it. If this takes you two years, three years, four years, just get after it, right? The, the, the purpose is, is that we would help you get into the Word and have a plan for how to get in God's Word uh, so that you can spend time with him. All right, so we saw in verse number one, connection and growing through grief. In verses two through four, we're going to see connection and growing through worship. Look again at verses two through four. Above him stood the seraphim. These are literally angels made of fire, right? These are not the angels that we think of that sell us toilet paper and <laughs> float on clouds, right? These are not the angel soft little angel babies that do that. These are not little white chubby European babies with harps and wings. These are literally beings made of fire. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundation of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. So what's going on here is, as Isaiah walks in, he's totally grief-stricken. He sees a vision of God on the throne, and then he gets a front row seat to what is very likely the best worship service ever recorded. He gets a front row seat, literally, to a heavenly worship service. There's these angels up there. Now, if you'll notice in verse 4, it says the house was filled with smoke. That's not because the flying, flaming angels have set the temple on fire. <laughs> it's filled with smoke because during the day, God's presence is symbolized by smoke, and at night it's symbolized by fire or sometimes by lightning. So there's always light involved at night. So that's what's going on, and they're calling out to each other. They're singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory, and they're singing with such passion and such intensity that the foundation of the door jam of the temple shakes. Now let me ask you a question. In your good times or in your bad times, have you ever been so intimately, passionately involved in worship that you could cause the foundations of your house to shake? The angels aren't even saved. They didn't go from death to life. They've always been heavenly messengers. We've gone from death to life. We ought to be the ones looking at the angels going, y'all ain't seen nothing. <laughs> Wait till I worship. Isaiah is connected to God through his grief, and he gets this front row seat. And the music is, well, 
heavenly. <laughs> and the singing is, <coughs> wait for it, angelic. How often have you had those personal moments? How often have you had what I like to call a moment of personal revival? When you see a beautiful sunrise or a sunset, or maybe you've held a newborn child for the first time, or maybe it's through reading something or through prayer or whatever it may be. I had a lady one time at our church in Louisville who told me she was driving down the interstate one day, she was looking at a sunset, and it caused her such intense emotion and such an intense connection to the Father that she had to pull over in the side and start, or just, just weep, because she couldn't do anything other than just weep, knowing what God had done for her. I'm glad she did, because driving down the interstate while weeping could have been bad, right? But how often do we get that intimately involved, intimately connected, intimately moved by what God has done for us? But here's the thing. It's usually when we have those connections that we feel the closest to the Father through worship. And that only comes through prayer and being connected through regular reading. Yep. In fact, I had one of those experiences just two days ago. I went skiing in the mountains and saw the sunrise, and it was just one of those moments where we said, wow. This is amazing, God. Thank you for your creation. Thank you for what you've done. And so when we connect with the grandeur of God, it changes us, right? We, we worship the Lord. And here Isaiah finds himself at the feet of God worshiping, and it's changing it. It's changing what he knows about God and who he is. Uh, and so worship helps us to grow in the Lord. And I think there's several important ways it does that. First, it helps us orient our world because as we worship God, God gets big and we should make him really big in worship and I get to be who I am, which is a created man and I get really, really small, right? And so do all the things that I have going on in our life. It, it helps us to set a proper perspective of what's important and what, what God can help us with. Uh, and this is why worship should be focused on God and, and who He is and what He has done so that it raises our affections for Him and it teaches us who we are. Secondly, I think it teaches us to be thankful for what God has done. How great is it to come to the end of the year and to praise God for all His provisions, all the things that He's done? It teaches us to be thankful to this God who's done so much for us. Thirdly, it, it encourages us with God's promises. When we sing back the words of what God has done, it, it encourages our hearts and it binds us together as believers that says, we are in this together. I'm with you. Let's go out. Let's live this thing out. And finally, it fires us up to live. Uh, we get to see other people worshiping around us and we walk out of these doors and we're ready, we're ready to take on the world. And so I want to challenge you to something again today that <clears throat> over the next couple months, if you don't regularly attend a worship service, I want to challenge you to, to attend for four to eight weeks consistently. Come and worship God and see how it transforms your life. So we've seen connection and growing through grief. We've seen connection and growing through worship. Now we're going to see in verse 5, connection and growing through the realization of sin. The text says, and I said, woe is me. Okay, we don't really say that often, do we? Maybe a more contemporary translation might be, oh man, this is bad, or this really stinks. Woe is me, for I am lost. Some translations say I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. 
after Isaiah hears of God's holiness through this song of the angels, he realizes something. He realizes, I am in the presence of the Father. The ancient Jewish people had such reverence for God, they wouldn't even speak His name. When they would come across in the Hebrew, when they would come across the personal name for God, they would substitute another word mentally and say that word instead. That's pretty significant awe for who the Father is. And Isaiah has this realization. And then he remembers, "Uh uh-oh, woe is me. God is holy, I am not. He remembers his sin. And specifically, he remembers his sin that comes through his lips. (coughs) His speech is less than. His speech is unclean. He realizes how lost and unholy he really is is. When we read about who God is, when we sing about who God is, we were just singing with Sean leading us about who God is, we realize something. We realize there are two constants in the universe, and it's not death and taxes. The two constants in the universe are there is a God, and none of us are Him. And like Isaiah, when we connect to the Father, we realize how lost we really are, how unholy we really are, both individually and as humans generally. We become desperate for closer connection because of that sin, and we desperately want forgiveness. But here's the thing. Paul tells us in Romans 1 that we suppress that desire for forgiveness from God, and we seek forgiveness and fulfillment through the things of the world. As believers, we have to seek the Father as as we realize how sinful and lost we really are. And as we look upon God and we see our own sin, this is part of this is part of how we grow. In fact, this is the normal process of our sanctification that as we grow closer to the Lord and experience him more, we actually see ourselves as more and more sinful. Maybe you've experienced this in your Christian life. You you become saved You can kind of deal with some exterior things in your life, and you're like, man, everything's going really well, and then God starts showing you things in your heart, right? He starts asking you, how do you you love that neighbor over there that you don't really like? How do you you serve your family and your wife well? How do you love that enemy, right, that you hear about on the news? And then we suddenly see the depths and more and more sinful nature of our hearts, how evil they actually are. In fact, I think the day we stand before the Lord like Isaiah, we'll have a very similar moment where we grasp the depth of our sin as we stare upon a holy God. And yet, just like Revelations 1, 12 through 20, where Christ is appearing before John and John has a similar reaction where he falls on the floor and says, I'm dead, I'm ruined, Christ comes over grabs him by, the, by his hand and picks him up and says, get up, your sins are forgiven, right? This is the picture I think that we have when we're going to stand before the Father. So we've seen connection and growth through grief, through worship, through the realization of sin. Now here comes the best part. Now connection and growth through the forgiveness of sin. Verses 6 and 7, one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he'd taken with tongs from the altar. This is a bad day for Isaiah. <laughs> He's having this grief-stricken moment. He's in there worshiping. Whoa, I'm a really bad guy because of my lips, because of what I say. And here comes a flying, flaming angel with a burning coal in his hand. 
Isaiah has just said, I should die. Here comes the angel. <laughs> the moral of the story is be careful what you ask for. Right? If I'm Isaiah, I am not thinking positive thoughts. I'm thinking this is going to hurt. Verse 7, and he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. One scholar says of these two verses that Isaiah may be the only human in recorded history who has experienced the real pain of repentance. Think about that for a second. What a powerful moment this is for Isaiah. He's just said, my lips have gotten me in a bind, I'm going to die, and you're forgiven. His lips were burned off, but he was forgiven. We also experience the pain of repentance as we realize how sinful we are and how graceful and merciful he is. And you ready? That's the most powerful thing you can ever experience in your entire life. Marriage, the birth of a child, nothing compares to the day and the moment of salvation. Nothing. And as you remember that, I go back again, I go back to my brother Jason and say, this should make you want to be a charismatic. <laughs> my wife grew up in a very hillbilly community in western North Carolina. I can say that because I'm now part of that family. And the church she grew up in, there was a guy in the church named Dickie. That was his given name. And Dickie, when he got really excited, some of you are laughing because you might know a Dickie, right, in your community where you grew up. When Dickie got really excited at church, when he got really fired up because he knew what God had done for him, he'd run up to the front, he'd grab the Christian flag, he'd run out in the two-lane road in front of the church, a 55-mile-an-hour road, he'd wave the flag in the middle of the road. Now, some of you might be thinking back to Andy Griffith and think about Barney, and you would say, he's a nut. No, he's not a nut. He's saved. He understands what it means. He understands the realization and the connection he has to the Father through his forgiveness. Yep. And so what we see here in Isaiah's life is a picture of real life transformation, right? Behold, your guilt is taken away. Your sins are atoned for. And a lot of scholars see here this was Isaiah's conversion, really, to the Lord. And, he, and then will become his com commission that changes the trajectory of his life, this encounter with God, that he got saved, right? And so real life transformation is the process of having our lives remade from the inside out as God cleanses us of our sin and gives us a new heart to walk in his ways. It starts with a realization of our need for Christ, acknowledging Him as Lord and repenting of our sin. And then this begins a lifelong journey of living in that grace of God, which is constantly acknowledging Him as Lord and asking for forgiveness. So real life transformation starts with a confession of Christ as Lord, but it doesn't end until you're standing before the Father at the end of this life. You are saved and being saved until you are completely saved. In fact, I once had a friend after a service, I had gone up and, and uh, had a moment with the Lord and was praying about a few things. He's like, he came to me after, he's like, man, you, you just got saved. I was like, well, I've been saved since I was three. He's like, no, no, but you got saved again. You're in the process of being saved. Your life is being transformed and you got to experience it again. And so part of the Christian life is learning how when we sin, not to go down into the spiral of self-pity and guilt, 
but to find ourselves rooted in the grace of God, doing 1 John 1, 9, confessing our sins and believing that God has cleansed us from all unrighteousness and resting in the grace of God as we're being transformed. All right, so we've seen real life transformation. Now let's move over. I know it's taken 25 minutes, so the next one, it won't take as long, I promise. <laughs> but the greatest lie ever told is on Sunday, which, which is a pastor saying, I'm almost done, right? That's right. So let's look at real life multiplication. Look at Isaiah 6, 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. Now, if you notice here specifically, Isaiah is given zero specifics. No idea where, no idea how, no idea when, no idea to whom. God says, who's going to go? Isaiah says, I'll go. Why does he say that? He says that because he's just been forgiven. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, well, I need to go ask the committee. He doesn't say, I need to go ask a board. He doesn't need to go ask a friend. He doesn't need to phone a friend. No, he just says, I'll go. God, whatever it is, I'll go. He begins his kingdom service right then and right there by showing his thankfulness for his forgiveness. Here's my question. Where are you called to serve because of the forgiveness offered to you? My challenge to you is this. If you aren't serving already, find a place in 2019 to serve. Not in order to move from 125 Silver Street to 123 Bullion Avenue in heaven. Not to move up the ladder. But you serve because he first served us by dying for us. And one of the biggest ways we've served, as we've already said, is, is being on mission, reaching our world with the gospel. In fact, Paul has the same sentiments here as Isaiah, 2 Corinthians 5, 11. He says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, meaning we've encountered God, we persuade others, right? 2 Corinthians 5, 20 calls us ambassadors. That is, that God is making His appeal to the world through us. Right? This is the call to be on mission, reaching our world like the Great Commission has for us. For some believers, we get to do it professionally, but this is a call for all believers. This is something for everybody to do, to be about multiplication, and we can do that in a lot of ways. We can go and be missionaries. We sent out Kirk and Crystal last year to go to, to Africa to reach people with the gospel. We support Mark and Wendy, who also went to Japan to reach people with the gospel. Many of you are, are signing up to go on short-term mission trips this year to Guatemala and other places to reach people with the gospel. But all of us are called to share, and for all of us, it's those people God has placed us in. It means reaching your neighbors and reaching your family, reaching those at work. In fact, we, we've taken a, a strategy we call Pray and Watch from Colossians 4, 2 through 5 that says, Pray for us that we may have an opportunity to share the gospel and that we would declare it boldly to those around us. And that's what we want for this congregation. We want to be a church in this next year that is reaching more and more people, multiplying ourselves. We want to see the gospel multiplied, churches planted, more people saved and coming into the kingdom. All right, so we've seen serving and growing through mission. Now in the first part of verse 9, we're going to see serving and growing through calling. <coughs> Look at the first part of verse 9. And God said, go and say to the people. So now God gives Isaiah a few specifics. You're going to go and you're going to say. Service is so much more than building something 
or serving somebody. Your service to the kingdom must be more than just a social contact. If not, it's nothing more than social construction. Kingdom service includes, as this verse tells us, saying. More specifically, in sharing the message of the hope found in Christ. I've heard so many people say, I share my faith through the way I act. Okay. Paul didn't say, believe in the way somebody acts and you'll get saved. He says in Romans 10 that you have to hear the words of the gospel to get saved. And that we are all preachers in this. That's the only method by which unbelievers will ever hear and be saved. So the question I have is, who are you called to reach? For some of you, it might be getting on a plane and going across the pond. For others, it might be walking to the bedroom next to yours. Both are equally valid. Do not think that a person is more of a Christian than you are because they go across the planet to reach someone. Your calling might be to reach someone in the next bedroom or a neighbor or a coworker, while another person's calling may be to reach across the world. But we serve the kingdom through our calling. So my challenge for you for 2019 is this. Think about five names of unbelievers that you know. If you don't know five, think of four. If you don't know four, think of three, and on we go. Write those down and pray for them regularly. Don't put them on your refrigerator so they're facing out. So when they come in your house, they think, wow, what is this? And then they get offended, right? Think about those. Pray for those people. Ask God to save them. Ask your community group, people around you, to pray for them for their salvation. Share those names and pray for them and watch God move through the gospel. Yeah, 1 Corinthians 12 tells us that in the Spirit we have all been given gifts, different ways of serving the body and then reaching with the kingdom to reach others for the gospel. And so whether you're a doctor, a teacher, construction worker, uh, a stay-at-home mom, all these are callings from the Lord where God has placed you to be part of His kingdom-empowered people reaching others for the gospel. In fact, I went to a, a, a breakfast of Christian professionals not very long ago, uh, and they were talking about all the different ways that they do their jobs well first, and then they reach those around them with the gospel. And so don't ever think that, that where you are is insignificant. God has a calling on your life, and where you are now is where He's called you. And so let's get to work and reach those that God has put around us. Serving and growing through missions, serving and growing through calling. Now we're going to see that serving and growing... Serving the kingdom and growing in the kingdom is hard. Look at verses 9 through 12, the end of verse 9 through 12. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of the people dull, their eyes heavy, blind their eyes, or their ears heavy, blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And I said, How long, O Lord? He said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the Land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Now Isaiah gets the bummer, right? Now he could say, woe is me again. He gets the downer. He gets the truth about serving around other humans. He's all fired up because he's forgiven. He's all ready to serve, to go and to say, and then God says, hey, don't forget, humans are still humans. Don't forget, unbelievers are still there. Don't forget, sin is still present. But guess what? Even after hearing this, Isaiah goes on for 60 more chapters. Yeah. 
<laughs> of serving the kingdom, regardless of the circumstance. He had difficulty while serving, and I'm sure he felt depressed at some points, but he still served the kingdom. So the question is, what difficult places or what difficult people are you serving? If they're sitting beside you, don't point to them. (laughs) Do you face difficulty and feel down while serving those places or those people? My challenge for you is this. Don't feel down because God is seated on the throne, reigning and in sovereign control. And if he's called you to do it, he'll give you the power to do it. If Jesus can turn Saul to Paul, and God can pull Jesus out of David's really messed up family, he can reach the people and the places that you're called to reach. That's right. And reaching the world is difficult. And we see this here. I mean, basically, Isaiah is commissioned to go and turn people away and harden their hearts until God pours out his destruction on the land of Israel and takes the people into exile. Isaiah was to proclaim the gospel, and yet God is saying the people aren't going to accept it. Sound familiar? Here we confront the hard reality of God's sovereignty in our work in the kingdom, in our our evangelism. At one level, it's terrifying as we witness um, that God will use what we say to people against them in judgment. That's a terrifying thought. And yet we see in John 3.16, everyone is offered the gospel that whoever believes in Christ will be saved. But John 6, 19 tells us that this is the judgment that God brings, that light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. This is what we're called to do. Go share the gospel. And guess what? People are going to reject it. And so in Isaiah's day, he was calling the people to repent of their idol worship, their materialism, their rejection of God's word, and yet they loved their things in the world more than God, and they kept on hearing but never heard. In fact, the same thing happens today. We share the gospel, and all it does is inflame people further against our message, even into rebellion against God, and that hurts. Reaching the world is difficult work. And yet at another level, it's comforting because we see here that the results of our sharing the gospel aren't up to us. In fact, we're called to proclaim the gospel to the world, and yet it is God who transforms the heart. In fact, John 6, says, no one can come to me, this is Jesus, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So the task is hard, it's hard to be bold. But we're called to proclaim the gospel, and it's up to God to bring the heart change. But the good news, as Travis has said, is that it does come. We've seen you all have stories of people being transformed by the gospel that you never thought possible. And so let's be the people this year that are willing to do the hard work, the difficult work of sharing the gospel and trusting God to do the real work of changing their hearts. Here comes the best piece because it's the end. (laughs) God brings the transformation in verse 13. God brings the multiplication. Look at 13. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it's felled. The holy seed is its stump. Even through the hardship and the difficulty of serving, the hardship and the difficulty of connecting and growing and reaching, notice what happens in verse 13. God brings transformation. A tenth will remain. 
God brings the multiplication. It is all due to God's work. Notice also the second phrase of verse 13, it will be burned again. Believers, we will be tested, we will be tried by fire. I once heard it said that God will never give you more than you can handle. I could not disagree more with that. God will give you more than you can handle every moment of every day to force you to realize that you can't do it, that it's all about him. Yet Christ stands right behind you with arms open, ready to catch you when you fall. My challenge to you for 2019 is to realize that God is the one working and only through him will you ever find the ability to connect, to grow, to serve, and to reach. Yep. And really, I want you to see this whole book of Isaiah <clears throat> is about real-life transformation and real-life multiplication. The transformation of Isaiah's life as a prophet that leads him to be a multiplying prophet. Think of the millions of people over the years who have read Isaiah's word and heard the gospel, right? Think of the Ethiopian eunuch who's traveling, reading the words of Isaiah, and then gets one of the disciples to explain it to him. Right? Real life transformation and multiplication because he saw who God was, let it affect him and grow him, and then he went out with God's message. Now, here's the cool thing. I've been researching a little theme here in Isaiah. Oh, here comes the research. That's right. Here comes the research. You've got to work it in somewhere. You've got to get it in. And I think it demonstrates this for us so well. In Isaiah 5:26, God talks about he is coming against the people of of Israel. He is raising up a standard. He is pulling together the nations to come against them as if they have become his enemy. These used to be his people and now they're his enemy. God's coming against them to destroy them. Then in Isaiah 11:10 it talks about that the root the son of Jesse will be raised up as a standard and he will draw the people of Israel and all nations to himself and him is the one that they will trust. They're talking about Jesus. And in fact, Isaiah will go on to talk about Jesus as the suffering servant. And then we come to the end of the book, Isaiah 62.10, and it gives us a picture of the transformed people of God. They have been transformed personally, and now they are bringing people in as they rally around this banner who is Christ. Look what it says. It says, go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway. Clear it of stones, lift up the banner over the people. Behold, the Lord is proclaimed to the end of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him, his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called a people sought out, a city not forsaken. Now, hundreds of years later, listen to John chapter 3. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Christ is the banner lifted up for us. 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Maybe you're here today and you've never heard the message of Jesus. It's a very simple message. Maybe you've never heard the message of the Bible. It's all summed up very simply. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. All means all. Every person, everywhere, for all time. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin, we get paid to mess up. 
that the wages of sin is death. And then the best word in the Bible comes right after that, but. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 5, 8 says that while we were still sinners, while we were actively disobeying, Christ died for us. And in Romans 10, 9 and 10, Paul says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There's no better message that we in Risen Life could give you on the last Sunday of 2018 than to say, if you just place your trust that Jesus did enough for you, God will credit that to your account. And you can spend eternity around the throne with the angels singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And what you do there begins a lifelong process of real life transformation. Not a one-time thing, but an ongoing process of living in God's grace, learning about him, growing in his ways, and then bringing other people into it, multiplying what God has done in your life into other people's lives. So I want to ask you, what are you going to do this year to get in God's presence? How are you going to get in His Word? How are you going to make time to pray and worship Him? Again, I'd encourage you to take one of these reading plans, one for your family, one way to get into the Word so that you will be continually transformed by God's Word. And then how are we going to make disciples this year? We want to grow as a church that's making disciples proclaiming the best message that's ever been who will you share the gospel with this year who has God placed in your life and who is he laying on your heart how will you share with them in the coming days and who will you intentionally disciple will it be your kids will it be your family who has God called you to begin that process of teaching them to walk in the ways of the Lord Let's see what the Lord will do this year at Risen Life in 2019. Let's pray. God, we are thankful, Lord, for 2018. Though it may have been hard for some, harder for others, God, you're still sovereign. You're still in control. We take rest in your sovereignty. We take rest in your control. God, we thank you that even in the midst of difficulty, we can still run to Christ. God, we ask that you transform us in 2019 more into the image of your son. God, that you'll multiply us so that others will be transformed to be in the image of your son. God, we ask that you connect us closer to each other and to the throne. We ask that you grow us more to be like Christ. God, show us where we can serve and be involved. God, help us to reach the world for Jesus so that even from Salt Lake City, there might be a revival in Utah, a revival in the West, and that we might be a light shining through the darkness. All for the sake of the kingdom. God, we give you the praise and you the glory and the honor, and we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Take these hands.